the only known cure for poverty is the emancipation of women. Christopher Hitchens. Back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, brought to you by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. A monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. This is a very special episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Like all of our episodes, it features stories of disappearances and murders with connections to Wyoming. But this month's episode has a central theme. In this world of hashtags, its universal encompassment has been boiled down to a four-letter acronym that you're no doubt familiar with, MMIW. It stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. But how familiar are you with these cases and some of the underlying contributing factors, which according to some studies make Native American women and girls between the ages of 0 and 35 almost 10 times as likely to be murdered as the national average? You will be by the end of this episode. Part 1. Where There Is No Path The ancestors of the Snake People have lived in Wyoming for thousands of years. They've lived on the mountains and the plains. They've made their homes of grass and their bowls from bone. And after those thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years, it was the French who found them first. The native people the French explorers encountered along the Snake River in the early to mid-1700s became known to them as the Snake People, or Jeanne des Serpents. The British would call them the same, and the Americans as well, as they expanded westward along the Oregon Trail. The Snake People are the Shoshone. Shoshone, which means in their native language, high grass or tall grass, though that language itself has become nearly extinct. Shortly after their encounters with the French, conflicts with other native tribes split the Shoshone into separate bands and they were scattered across the Great Plains in the American West. Today's Wyoming Shoshone are the Eastern Band. Two or three thousand members still live on and around the Wind River Indian Reservation. Some of them are descendants of the original ancient Sheep Eater, or Mountain Band, of the Shoshone. They are one of two tribes still living on the only Indian land in the state. History comes to matter in our focus today, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. It's a relatively new phrase, that one, coined by the media in Canada in the early 2000s. But while the name for it is new, the phenomenon isn't. Native American women, or First Nation women as they're known in Canada, are exponentially more likely to fall victim to homicide than the national average. The history of an entire continent is not required to understand why. And don't worry, we're not going to try to tell it anyway. But some historical context is needed for context of the issue in the stories that we'll be discussing in this episode. And it's a hard history to tell, in every possible way. Not only is our nation's history with the peoples who came before it very often tragic, but it's also complicated. There are hundreds of years to tell, dozens of laws and treaties to analyze, and so many cultural interactions and worse things to try to quantify. And somehow, in my effort to do this and lay the groundwork for this episode, I ended up at Sacagawea, 
Sacagawea is how I learned to pronounce it in school. It's more accurately pronounced Sacagawea. The story I learned in school is probably the story that most of you learned as well, that Sacagawea, or Sacagawea as we were taught, was the friendly Indian who Lewis and Clark just happened to meet on their journey west, and she became their guide, and she helped them traverse the land, and she helped them make peaceful introductions with the other Indians. All of this, I guess I assumed when I was in school, she was doing out of the pure goodness of her heart, just trying to be nice and helpful, I suppose. Of the maybe couple of pages that my middle school history textbook would have dedicated to Lewis and Clark, probably a paragraph or two was dedicated to Sacagawea, or Sacagawea, as I would later learn it's pronounced. And here's what really happened. Sacagawea, when she was about 12, was abducted by a rival Indian tribe. She was held prisoner for a few years, and eventually she was either sold or won in a bet by a French trapper who essentially enslaved Sacagawea and then raped her, basically, and she became pregnant. She and this Frenchman were living in the same fort that Captains Lewis and Clark of the U.S. Army arrived at, and Lewis and Clark agreed to hire this French trapper to assist in their journey west. But what they really wanted was not the Frenchman. What they wanted was Sacagawea. Lewis and Clark understood that she could assist them in language barriers and actual mountain-sized barriers that they would encounter along their way. And that's what she did. For the next two years, Sacagawea guided this party over the continental divide to the Pacific Ocean. But really what she did was serve as an envoy. Sacagawea was able to demonstrate to any native people that the group encountered that this was a peaceful mission. And it's true that in language and culture and even geography, America's first successful mission to the West may not have happened without Sacagawea. And her infamy was sealed by the words of William Clark. When his journals of the expedition were published, America and the world were introduced to this fascinating character, their Indian guide, and the myth of Sacagawea was born. And while she served her entire function with that expedition as a slave, she was ironically adopted as an early icon of American feminism. This is when the statues and the plaques of her memory in her honor in the early 1900s were erected all over the country by the first proponents of America's women's liberation movement. After the expedition, Sacagawea had another child, her second, and then in 1811, when Sacagawea was just 23 years old, a fur trader who was living along the Missouri River in South Dakota wrote in his journal that Sacagawea and, and the Frenchmen were living there and that Sacagawea had become gravely ill and soon after died. That was December 20th, 1812. And she was 23 years old. There's a large obelisk monument in Mobridge, South Dakota, at the site of her death that you can still visit today. But the version I prefer is the version of this story that's told by the Eastern Shoshone in Wyoming. For generations, they've told stories of their bird woman. A man named Dr. Charles Eastman found this woman's daughter living in Wyoming in 1952. And she told Dr. Eastman a story that her mother had told her about helping to guide white men across the American West. 
and this woman possessed a silver war medal that had been passed down to her by her mother that was similar to one that would have been familiar to Lewis and Clark. She told Dr. Eastman that following the journey west, her mother escaped her white husband and married into the Comanche tribe. After her warrior husband died in battle, her mother eventually made her way back to Wyoming and the Shoshone, where she died on April 9, 1884. That burial was officiated by Dr. John Roberts, who was the Episcopal missionary on the Wind River Reservation, for 50 years. And to his last day, he swore his assurance to anyone who would ask that he had buried Sacagawea in a grave in Fort Washakie. The Shoshone even say that this woman kept a diary, but that the building it was kept in was destroyed by fire the year after her death. The legend of Sacagawea lives among the Shoshone of the Wind River Indian Reservation, and it's drawn outsiders as well. Years later, a Sacagawea biographer traveled to Fort Washakie for research and left on a hike to climb the 8,000-foot-high Sacagawea Ridge on the reservation, and she was never seen again. There's something about Sacagawea's story that encompasses the rest of what we're going to talk about on this episode. She is a liaison for us, in a way, just like she was for Lewis and Clark 200 years ago. She bridges a gap between two worlds. I left one of those worlds in 2009. But before I moved away from the Wind River Indian Reservation, I remember when the three girls died there that summer. 13-year-old Oetica Wynn, or Alexis as she was known, was on summer break following her freshman year at Riverton High School. She'd been on the basketball team and the volleyball team in her first year there. Her mother was deployed for training as a private in the U.S. Army at the time, and her father later told CNN, he didn't often allow his daughter to stay with friends on the reservation especially, but he made an exception this time. Alexis had plans to meet with 14-year-old Winter Rose Thomas Jenkins and 15-year-old Alexandria, or Alex, White Plume. All three of these girls had great appreciation for their friends, their family, and their tribal community. Winter Rose was learning her native Arapaho language, which is spoken by fewer than a thousand people alive today. One of her last spiritual acts was to sing, and beautifully so by all accounts, at a sweat ceremony. She was proud of her culture and her heritage. All three of them were. All three of these girls had plans for their future. All three had hopes and dreams. All three, their families said, had aspirations to beat the odds and overcome the difficult circumstances of their childhoods. All three were found dead two days later. Two of the girls were found inside a small, dilapidated residential housing complex, while Winter Rose Jenkins had been found 20 yards behind the house. It's believed the girls had been dead for 24 hours before the police were called. The medical examiner ruled the manner of the girls' death as homicide caused by a drug overdose. On the res, there was talk of a teenage party that went terribly wrong. Tribal elders were saying that alcohol was somehow involved. Without any recreational facilities to speak of, drug and alcohol use is a common problem on the reservation among teens and adults. Three years earlier, in 2006, tribal police had executed two of the largest drug busts on res land in the history of the state. Ultimately, 60 people were arrested, including a tribal judge who was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And the meth that was coming in knew no tribal affiliation. It hit both sides of the reservation hard. 
According to law enforcement, in the decades before the deaths of the three Arapaho girls in 2009, a gang of Mexican nationals was trafficking $3 million worth of methamphetamine through the Wind River Reservation every year. The meth that was cooked at Super Labs along the U.S.-Mexico border and smuggled to Wyoming was nearly 100% pure. At the peak operation of the cartel, $10,000 worth of drugs were trafficked through the res every single day. Counseling services in Riverton and Lander reported tenfold increases in the number of drug-addicted patients they were seeing between 2000 and 2010. Tribal police would crack down as they could, and things would seem to improve for a time, but the drugs would always come back. Like a worm crawling back into an apple, in the words of one Arapaho elder. Some northern Arapaho tribe leaders attributed some of the problem to a lack of cultural identity, and within two weeks said they had launched major efforts to curb the problem, though they weren't any more specific. And with the opening of a brand new casino just across the road from where the girls' bodies had been found, there was renewed hope for jobs, opportunity, and direction for the community. The grand opening of that new casino stood in stark relief to the tragedy the tribe was experiencing, and the grand opening ceremony paused for a moment of silence for the three girls. According to the victim's family members, two teenage boys from the reservation were arrested in connection with the deaths of the three girls. The family members of the accused boys told CNN in 2009 that there was more to the story that wasn't being told and that local rumors about the case weren't true, but claimed they weren't able to say anything further for legal reasons. A year after the girls were found, members of the tribe organized a memorial walk, and the Wind River Youth Program, which exists to provide children and teens on the reservation some recreation and direction, noted that they'd seen an increase in volunteers. But there was still nothing from the FBI the BIA, or the local coroner about the investigation. And the combination of tribal jurisdiction and the individual's concerns being minors led to a lockdown on details. Any information about how the girls died or who contributed to their deaths was under tight seal. Despite the efforts of an open government group who requested that the records of the case, even with the names and other personal details left out just so some of the basics about the deaths might be known to the community and their families, even that, effort was rejected. At the time, officials said the records from the investigation would be released, quote, following the conclusion of the investigation in accordance with state and federal law, unquote. But a U.S. district judge in Cheyenne sealed those case files, and they've never been unsealed. According to the families of the victims, each of the two boys involved received a two-year sentence as juveniles. But without the case information and court documents, there's no way to know for sure. One of the girl's friends, Whitney Sunroads, later said in talking about what it's like to grow up on the res, surrounded by bad choices waiting to be made, and with little prospect for a prosperous future, quote, My uncle always used to tell me, Don't follow where a path may lead. Go instead where there is no path. Leave a trail. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure located right in the middle of the Cowboy State. It's a hub for experiencing the best the state has to offer. Attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, 
This time of year, world-class skiing, mountain recreation, casino gaming, and amazing cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. There is no place on earth like it. As you plan your vacation for the spring and summer, plan on Riverton, Wyoming. It has easy access to the very best of the state. And while you're visiting, you want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn & Suites is conveniently located. They serve a free hot breakfast. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. And feel the Hamptonality. Part 2. Luck Don't Live Out Here There was no reason for concern right away. After she hadn't come home from the powwow, her family thought she must have gone with friends. It was only later that the girl's parents thought about the man she'd been seen talking to there, outside the Great Plains Hall in Arapahoe. But after the weekend was over on Monday, the eighth grader still hadn't returned home, and by then Vern Spoonhunter, the girl's father, had become quite concerned. He called the police on Monday. He called everyone else he could think to call that might know where Marissa might be on Tuesday. And by Wednesday, out of sheer desperation then, he called the local newspaper and the local radio stations. Missing flyers were printed and distributed. And Wednesday is when the body was found on the reservation. Marissa's parents found out through a text message and drove to the scene, hoping and praying the found body wasn't their daughter, but of course it was. She was wearing the new coat that they just bought for her. Marissa Spoonhunter was found 15 miles from where she'd last been seen, more or less discarded, next to a home near Ephity. It was only then that people started thinking about the last time they'd seen Marissa and the man that she'd been seen talking to the weekend before. And for a time, that's all anyone had to speculate about. Those who had seen her last at the powwow replayed every interaction, every word in their minds, every scenario as they looked around them and wondered if someone else in the community might have been responsible for this young girl's death. And the family wanted answers. Marissa's parents told the police and the FBI everything they could think of that might possibly help them find out what happened to her. Everybody else in their shock was talking about Marissa, things she liked to do, hang out with friends and play sports, basketball and volleyball especially. Justice is often delayed but it was not in Marissa's case. And nobody could have imagined what justice would look like. Just two weeks after her body was found, two men were arrested in connection with Marissa Spoonhunter's death. And the following March, almost a year later in 2010, the Spoonhunter's oldest son, 22-year-old Robert, was sentenced to 13 years in prison after pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter and the death of his sister. According to authorities, Robert had walked in on a 19-year-old man, Karen Tillman, sexually assaulting his 13-year-old sister. Robert had been drinking for most of the night. According to the charges, he choked his sister and threw her against a weight bench, resulting in her death. Here's the FBI version of events on that night as disclosed at one of Karen Tillman's legal hearings. Quote, on the evening of April 2, 2010, Mr. Tillman, who was 19 years old, was drinking at his stepfather's house with Mr. Spoonhunter and Mr. Spoonhunter's 13-year-old sister, who were Mr. Tillman's stepcousins. At some point, Mr. Tillman and Mr. Spoonhunter's sister began having sex in the back room. Soon thereafter, Mr. Spoonhunter entered the room, pulled Mr. Tillman away from his sister, and threw Mr. Tillman out of the room. When Mr. Tillman returned, he saw Mr. Spoonhunter holding his sister in a chokehold. Her body went limp. And when Mr. Spoonhunter released her, she hit her head on the weight bench. Unquote. 
Karen Tillman was Marissa's step-cousin. And the rest of the family could not contain their outrage at the hearing at Tillman's sexually assaulting the young girl. District Judge Alan B. Johnson waived typical sentencing guidelines for Tillman's charges and added 17 additional months to his sentence and adding a requirement that Tillman register as a sex offender upon his release. In all, Karen Tillman was sentenced to just over six and a half years. Tillman has since been released, but was arrested and jailed again in Natrona County in 2016, and then again in 2018. Marissa's father, Vern, who, along with his wife, had stood alongside Marissa's brother, Robert, throughout the trial, told the judge that nothing could change the way he felt about his son. He was my first baby, he said. Now we have two rooms in our home that are empty. Vern Spoonhunter also lost his own father to murder on the reservation. In 1982, Robert Joe Spoonhunter was stabbed to death in his own home at about 4 a.m. An unnamed suspect was taken into custody, but there's no record as to the outcome of that case. Robert Spoonhunter, named for his own murdered grandfather, told the court at his sentencing that alcoholism had taken over his life. Every day for me was getting drunk and not ever caring about anything at all, Robert said. And he expressed to the court that he would trade places with his murdered sister if he could. The life expectancy on the Wind River Reservation is 49 years, according to a 2012 expose published by the New York Times. There are 195 countries in the world. If Wind River were its own nation, it would rank 196th in life expectancy, worst on the planet. According to the National Crime Information Center, 84% of Native American women will experience violence in their lifetime. To help put that figure into perspective, that's the same percentage as Americans who lived in the same house they did a year ago. Do you live in the same residence you did in January 2019? If yes, if you were a Native American woman, statistically speaking, you would have been the victim of violence in your life. What is the cause of this? There's no point pretending that the answer to that question is simple. There are 537 federally recognized Indian tribes in the U.S., which comprise the 1 million Native people who live on America's 326 Indian reservations. Major crimes committed by and against members of those hundreds of different tribes on those hundreds of reservations are investigated by the federal government or the state or the tribe, depending on where the crime takes place. Throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, the federal government had been trying, grappling really, fairly ineffectually, with a question of jurisdiction for Native peoples. It is, to this day, our country's longest planted thorn in the paw, as it were. And while over the centuries legislative efforts have been made to remedy the situation to the satisfaction of all parties involved, what I'm about to describe is the best that we've been able to do so far. When it was passed in 1953, Public Law 280, as it's known, removed the federal government's jurisdiction over Native American people on Native American land in five U.S. states. And that number has grown to 15 states today. In those 15 states, which are California, most of Minnesota, all of Nebraska, parts of Oregon, some of Wisconsin, as well as Alaska, Nevada, South Dakota, Washington, Florida, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, Arizona, Iowa, and Utah, 
In those states, law enforcement on tribal lands has been handed over to the states and the tribes themselves. In all other U.S. states, including Wyoming, the BIA, or Bureau of Indian Affairs, and occasionally the FBI, respond to major crimes on reservations. Adding another layer, tribal courts have no criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians, regardless of where an offense takes place. This is part of the reason why the effectiveness of these various tribal law enforcement agencies are all over the place. They vary wildly. Some are very efficient at prosecuting major crimes in their tribes on their reservations, and some are more inept than you can possibly imagine. And the scale of these reservations, of course, vary widely as well. Some of the reservations are on a massive area and have very large populations, like Wyoming's, and some are policed by one part-time law enforcement officer for the entire tribe. It just depends. Nevada's South Fork Reservation, for example, has solved every single murder it's ever investigated, which, by the way, is one single murder that was committed in 2013. While the Fort Apache Agency, which has jurisdiction over 13,000 Apache inhabiting 2,600 square miles of Arizona, has failed to solve 98% of its murders of which there are six every year, and they haven't solved a single one in seven years now. And if you're wondering, on Wyoming's only reservation, which is one of the ten largest in the country, both by population and by area, the homicide clearance rate since 2005, meaning charges being filed in murder cases, the homicide clearance rate is 31%. In the last 15 years, of the 22 murders investigated by the Wind River Agency, seven have been charged. This year, somewhere around 100 to 150 people will be reported missing from the Wind River Indian Reservation. Most of those cases will be solved and determined to be underage runaways, the vast majority. But 10% of those 100 or 150 cases will be something more serious. And if history is any indication, One or two cases this year will never be solved, and the person reported missing will never be seen again. And that's just Wind River. But alongside everything else that we've been talking about in this episode, even these statistics can't be trusted. Not when the most basic questions can't be answered. This is something the Wyoming legislature attempted to clarify just last year, the reporting process of these crimes. Because something as basic as just how many people live on these reservations across the country can't be trusted. Consider these stats. There are 12 Indian reservations, 12, listing fewer than 10 residents, according to the 2010 U.S. Census. And then there are the 26 reservations in the U.S. with an official census population of zero. Failure of the criminal justice system in Indian country starts at the same place that reform would start at the beginning, meaning the beginning of one's life, or if you like, the beginning of one's criminal career. Studies have been done in the last 10 years or so that find Native American youths enter the system at a very high rate. When they do, they have less access to public education, they have less access to mental health services and other services that have been proven to curb criminal behavior in every other demographic across the country. Maybe more importantly, the violence that Native children experience is staggering. It is staggering in a global sense, even compared to any other set of people on Earth, to say nothing of the rest of America. Some of the problem of violence against Native women and children lies at the feet of the native population 
and the Native communities across the country themselves. But much of the problem with the criminal justice system through which these crimes against women and children are supposed to be remedied, that problem lies at the feet of an American government which neither knows how to solve the problem nor has ever shown much interest in wanting to do so. The issue is thorny, and when they're being honest, is seen as largely unresolvable by all parties involved. And maybe it is, maybe it can't ever be solved. But maybe someday it can. And for all the time between now and then, the tribes themselves can and should give their families and children the best access possible to services and organizations that are available in even the poorest non-native communities in the rest of the country. Boys and girls clubs, mentoring programs, teams, organizations, so on. And just as is the case in the rest of America, native children will benefit from exposure to adults who are in a position to help them. Teachers, doctors, lawyers, family development professionals. And they need to see it for themselves, around them, in and of who they interact with every day. They need to see something that they want to become. But the federal government also needs to wrest control to tribes across the country. The same can be said for some state governments as well. Give these tribes the ability to enact their own priorities, enforce their own laws over their own people. Can you imagine your local courthouse not having jurisdiction over crimes committed in the community? Any tribe on any reservation can be sovereign or not, but they can't be both. So long as Indian tribes don't fully control their own justice system, how are they to be expected to effectively curb the criminality that occurs within the community? And in the meantime, the red tape needs to be cut. There's an argument to be had about whether or not federal funding is to be had to these populations. But if it is to be had, it needs to be easier to acquire. There are legal barriers to overcome in this issue. There are political barriers. There are cultural barriers to overcome. But there is good news here. If some of these changes were to be implemented, if these tribes did more to expose their next generation to an aspirational future, and if our lawmakers in the rest of the country did more to grant autonomy for these tribes when it comes to policing themselves, if these changes start to happen, there is, right now, an opportunity that is long since passed the rest of us by. And don't get me wrong, it is one of the most efficient and generally one of the fairest means of justice that has ever been devised by humanity. Especially when you consider the sheer size, the sheer number and diversity and backgrounds that our justice system governs. And we all know it's not perfect. If there is such a thing as perfect justice. But our justice system does not know why it does what it does. Our system doesn't know if it punishes for retribution or out of vengeance or to keep the rest of us safe or to keep the criminals from committing more crimes. And it seems to want to try to do all those things at the same time. And naturally, when a system tries to do all of those things, it accomplishes closer to nothing. But the native population in this country, if given the authority, could choose a manner of justice that would best serve their own future. They could choose a manner of justice that would best suit their own tribe. If they were allowed to take into consideration of their system the kinship and the personal ties of their communities, and the religious beliefs of their communities. If they were allowed to do essentially the same thing that our founding fathers of this nation afforded themselves the opportunity to do, 
maybe their future would prosper as ours has. A couple of years ago, a tribe in Oklahoma staged what I thought was a fairly interesting public demonstration. Outside of a local courthouse, they poured red sand in the cracks of a sidewalk. The red sand, it said in some tribes, red is the only color that the spirits can see. The red sand was meant to symbolize missing and murdered indigenous women who had fallen through the cracks of the criminal justice system. And I understand the sentiment, but I'm not sure that the native population of this country has fallen through the cracks as much as they just have been ignored. They have been in crisis, and now their crisis has become a silent one. Just as you would be silent too, if ignored for so long. Because after so long of no one listening, you just stop talking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming, brought to you by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. For much more information about the cause of missing and murdered Native women in America and Canada, you can visit the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women at csvanw.org or the Global Indigenous Council at mmiw-gic.com. And if you're a social media user, post with a hashtag, somebody's daughter or hashtag MMIW, and suggest that someone else listen to this episode as you have taken the time to do. I also want to thank those of you who support the podcast by telling your friends about it and sending them a link or showing them how to listen to it. And thanks especially to our Patreon supporters. You can get early access to every episode and support the podcast for $10 at patreon.com slash Podcast. Or just search for Dead and Gone in Wyoming on Patreon. Along those lines, you can follow the show on Twitter at Wyoming Podcast and email me directly about the show, wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. I did not enjoy this episode, if I'm to be honest, but it might be one of the more important episodes that we ever do. It's good to be bothered by important things sometimes. I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.